SonicState.com Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 44. Um, we're recording this Wednesday the 2nd of May and it's going to be going live on Thursday the 3rd of May. Uh, we're into May here in the UK and it's been scorchingly hot. It feels like midsummer already. I think we're waiting for Rich Hilton because uh, I think he woke up a bit late. But PJ, your alarm clock obviously did go on. It did. And woke you up, and um, you're with us. That's I am. That's PJ Tracy from Minneapolis in the US. Let's see, who should we have next? Um, we've got Non-Eric back with us after a long break. How are you doing, Non-Eric? And good to hear from you. I'm fine, and I'm very happy to be back on Sonic Talk. Oh, well, we're glad to have you. Uh, Non-Eric, of course, is um, very much involved in digitalmusician.net, and that's uh, the people who enable kind of live jamming and session work. Um between each other across the world wide web was that a, a fairly reasonable assumption yeah quite quite well uh, we uh, we just l- last week we launched what we call the studio job market and um, it uh, allows you to actually use digital musician to play studio sessions and get paid uh, on the system you know everything is handled by by our software all right so you can hire yourself out over the system yeah. well, that's yeah. cool very cool that's a good idea it's a great yeah. idea yeah, and it all works. Um, you can use PayPal to actually, you know, you, you upload a track if you played something in two versions. One is the preview version and the other one is the high-resolution version. And if the, uh, the producer um, likes a track and he listens to the preview, and then if he wants to buy it, he can immediately buy it via PayPal and download the full-resolution version. Nice. God, I'd never make any money if, if I used that system. I'm not meant to talk yet, am I? You haven't introduced me. I'm not here. (laughs) (laughs) Because, Mark, I'm afraid after last week's terrible, terrible oversight, I will introduce you next. Uh, Hello, Mark Tinley, sound artist, musician, programmer, um, filmist, all sorts of people wrapped into one. Indeed, I am. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, Hello to John Musgrave also. Good afternoon. Have you been busy again, John? Yeah, still in a sea of remixes, I'm afraid to say. Well, no, I'm not afraid to say. It's fine. It's just good. a lot of things well, it's, to do. It's good to be busy. Will it blend? That is the question. Andy Jones from Feedback PR sent me this. Uh, he's been a part of, hasn't been on the show for a long time, but he sent me this. He said, you've got to check it out. And it's basically, as far as I can tell, it's, um, it's like a viral marketing kind of um, campaign by Blendtec. They've, what, all they've got is this kind of spoof rate... Um, a TV show um, in a sort of 1950s style with uh, with a bloke putting various items in a blender. And the, the, the kind of sale point being how could this blender is so strong it can actually um, blend incredible things. And the one that I saw was it blending an iPod. And it really did chew it up into lots of tiny little bits. It's kind of quite powerful. And this is a home blending system. It came out as very, very dangerous-looking dust. Didn't yeah, it? well, he, uh, he, does, he does say, don't breathe this in, the host Tom. Don't breathe that. I thought it was fantastic. It had me an absolute fit when he did the iPod. I was, yeah. <laughs> couldn't believe he did that. I just and kept looking through so many to look at. But there's something else I thought. I've always wanted to put a mobile phone in a microwave and then call myself and then record the output of the mobile phone as it blows up. But you could use the same principle for this, couldn't you? You could put the mobile phone in the blender. I did see a, 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 whole, a whole jug full of uh, mobile phones being blended on one of them. I think my personal favourite is... Um, the video camera. That was pretty good. Did anyone see that? He put a video camera <laughs> in that was actually filming. 
And you can order the blender right on the website. Yeah, brilliant. It's, cool. it's a great piece of um, via yeah. marketing. And just, uh, can anyone it's only $400. Wow, really? Is that all? That's, uh, isn't that more than an iPod? Cheaper the price. Yeah, but he's sticking about 1500 bucks worth of electronic gear into it. So that's not too bad, 400 have it, has anyone actually seen it blending like fruit or something that you might want to blend? <laughs> there are there are two tabs on the website. One is kind of don't you know a, a, a home with a big cross in it, which is don't try this at home, and the other one is okay. do try this at home. So presumably that's you know stuff you'd normally blend rather than. Nick, I would like to see my Keystation eighty eight blended, but I don't think it'll fit into that blender. You'd probably have to just take it into little bits first, wouldn't you? Put yep. it, feed it yep. in key by key. <laughs> exactly. Hmm. Maybe you should call them up and you can get on the show. Oh, maybe. You never know. I'm not sure M-Audio would be quite so keen. but um, No, I don't think so. So um, we're now joined by Richard Hilton, who I think had a, maybe a bit of alarm trouble this morning because he's also based in, uh, is it upstate New York or sort of New England area? It's in Connecticut, yes, near to New York State. Rich Hilton is, uh, well, currently working on a lot of projects with Nile Rogers. He's kind of his main man, has been doing it for, what, 20 years, did you say? Just about. We were just talking about... Um, this will it blend topic. I watched the guy spin an iPod in there, yeah. I, I've i never had that destructive streak that motivated me to be interested in this sort of thing, I have to admit. So is, <laughs> is, um, is that a big brand in the U- US? Because I noticed it was like a, it was a, what was it called? Blendtec. I've never seen one. Okay. I've never heard of them. Oh, yeah. right, well, maybe um, they just hired a really good ad agency. I, I imagine lots of people will have heard of them now because um, that was a great little campaign. So. SonicState.com Did anyone see this uh, Vielklang real-time harmonizing plugin? It's a sort of, it's a VST plugin that works Mac PC, but it's just VST, and it, it, it renders four individual harmonies sort of intelligently from a single monophonic source by the, by the looks of things. Um, I thought it looked very much like the Solemony uh, Melodyne kind of um, interface. Is it? Anyone know if it's got anything to do with them? I think it's a separate company. I just I've actually had this um, sent over to me to review, so I'm in sort of in about a day or two into looking through it. So, oh, that's handy. Um, it's a, it's it looks a bit similar to, to to Melodyne, but it actually loads up as a, as an instrument in Logic. So it's not a plugin uh, like an effects plugin. It actually loads as an instrument plugin. I've been trying to load the damn thing since I got this email from Nick, and I couldn't find it. Obviously, <laughs> I haven't read any manuals. So I just sort of did it. But, you know. So that's just, where it is. Okay, that's why it is. I didn't read the manual either, um, and uh, had me scratching my head for a few minutes. So what you do is you load it as an instrument, and then you import the audio directly into it. So rather than it working on a piece of audio that you have sitting in, in the arrangement screen, you actually drag the audio into the window, and then it outputs the four streams of, of audio, the, the original... Um, pitch and then three additional harmonies is it true uh, that it actually um, also comes up with its own uh, suggestions for harmonies which i find quite interesting actually it does it has a setting whereby it it picks three harmonies on top of the on top of the root and you can spread them out so tell it how much distance those harmonies will will cover in terms of pitch How how does it know what key you're in though it guesses the key from the melody, and if it's wrong, you can change it. It's not by no means perfect. It doesn't necessarily get all the notes correct, but you can just shunt them around a bit like you can in Melodyne. So in that respect, it's very similar t- to use to Melodyne. Right. Well, the interface looks quite similar, doesn't it? It does, yeah. You know, I looked at the um, there's a sort of flash step-by-step demo. It doesn't have any audio in there. Um, but 
I, uh, there was sort of this strange process because obviously you have to load the file in for an hour. No, you have to turn it into a contiguous piece of audio if you want the whole thing done. Then you have to load the file into the to the plugin. Then you have to tell the plugin, uh, you know, to sort of timestamp the file so that it plays yeah. better. It all seems it seems a little bit clunky in that sense. What is the um, sound quality like? Has anybody heard it yet? Because that's what I was curious about. Yeah, it's not perfect. Um, I'm still playing around with it at the moment, so. I think the further, as, as with a lot of these things, the further you drift from the original pitch, the more obvious it is. Is it is it equal to Melodyne, John, or would you say it's not quite up to that standard? Or? I haven't A-B'd them. I, I, I suspect it's not quite as good as Melodyne, but then it's a bit difficult to say because if you're pitching like a whole fifth or something like that, it's, it, yeah. you know, there's so many... You can change the format parameter, which has a significant effect on the quality as well. Rich, you, do you ever kind of come across this, or do you just get people to sing it properly? I typically have people singing it, but I have created notes out of existing notes where I didn't have a performance of that word or whatever that I liked, and I thought it would suit it better to just take an alternate lead vocal and drop that syllable in and pitch it to where it needed to be in Melodyne. But um, I've not got a lot of automatic harmonization need in my life. Uh, I do occasionally change the harmonies that have been sung or written, but... uh, that's about it. Well, because, I mean, it, it, there's the TC stuff as well. I mean, I wonder how it compares to that, because that's, you know, that's been going a long time, and it seems like if there's new technology coming on the market, or at least a new product, it's going to have to be pretty damn good. There's to- also, I mean, I think the best one, personally, for generating harmonies is the Roland thing. The Varios. The difference between those two products and this particular product is that this one runs native, whereas the TC and the Roland require external hardware of some kind. Yeah, I quite like the Roland box, though. It's that really nice sort of red metallic color. What, what, what seems to be funny is that it's actually an instrument, and you load in the audio. I mean, yeah. that, that means that when I change something in the audio or anything, I, I have to it reload it, do it again, and I can't hear the change as I play around with it. I don't quite get it. That's the same as Melodyne, though. What struck me about this was it, it didn't. It felt like it, it was, would be great for just throwing up a few ideas and getting a few harmony ideas very quickly if you had one vocal line or one guitar line or something like that. Yeah, right, right. You might get some creatively interesting results that way. But for Maybe for people who, who musically aren't so hot on harmony writing. It it's me, it's me, it's me. <laughs> That's exactly what I would like to use it for because I, when I'm trying to do harmonies on my vocals, I just go crazy because I can't, just can't get it together, you know, listening to one voice and trying a second one on top of it. This would be perfect for me to just, you know, try, uh, you know, get some ideas uh, out of it and then try to duplicate it by actually singing them. The thing I want from these kind of systems is to be able to create natural-sounding other people singing with me. So if I sing the lead vocal, I don't want the backing track to be four other ones of me. So I need an, a, a couple of Aretha Franklins, a couple of Bowies in there, the T-Rex backing singers. <laughs> and I need to be able to just twist those settings and then sing no it as me, and it comes back out sounding like them. Maybe what we, what we need is some kind of... Uh, um, it's like a Second Life character build, uh, avatar building kit combined with this plug-in so you can create your sort of large gentleman or skinny um, <laughs> skinny blonde or whatever and you can create them those personalities so that they can then o- occupy the harmony for you about 15 years ago nick and i got in touch with this man called ken lomax who was um who made this machine that you could type into and it sang and sounded like elvis 
and, and but, but you could switch you could switch the technology you could change the voices to different people's voices so it would understand or i think it decoded what you were singing and then turned it into someone else but I, have to say, I, I was i was surprised by how much the on on this software how much the change in format affects the sound sound of the voices though well i ha- i have successfully used form and shifting in melodyne to eliminate what i call the lucille ball factor from some uh rock and roll female vocalists who become very uh shall we say abrasive at the higher end of their uh Local range. Right. And uh, back related to the scale issue, as you look at their first audio example that they provide, they show you the original file, they harmonize it in minor, they harmonize it in major, and then they harmonize it in what they call a gypsy scale. Ah. So there there are other possibilities that the program might suggest, and that does, to me, interest me as far as creative possibilities go. Mm. Me too. You know, it sounds like it could be a very useful tool just in terms of the creation of backing vocals. If you're perhaps not, you know, terribly experienced in how to do that, um, it will give you a whole bunch of ideas and, you know, and quite possibly stuff that you could finish, you know, that you could use in in the finished article as well. Because, I mean, most of these Mm -hmm. things you can abuse in some way and get some, maybe, you know, have the sound of the moment for a while out of it or whatever. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be pretty useful. We're talking now about uh, the Learn How to Mix DVD, and it features a Grammy Award-winning Francis Buckley, and it's volume one of Essential Recording Concepts, and it goes through all sorts of uh, ways to s- how you set up your studio, preparing your room, optimum monitor placement, microphone fundamentals, su- signal floor, flow and gain staging, etc., etc. And that's available from qtechdesigns.com. That's qtechdesigns.com. And uh, the first volume's there at thirty four ninety nine. What I've found is that we've been flooded by this kind of DVDs everywhere. Or is it just uh, my impression that I see lots and lots and lots of tutorial DVDs, learn how to do this, make this this way, DVDs. I think that's actually, um, there seems to be a, is a high demand as, as the tools get more and more sophisticated and more, more complicated. People are really struggling with the stuff they got, I think. I wonder if they could sell a pair of OEM ears to each uh, potential customer <laughs> for this book, because I don't care how much you talk about it, the actual art of doing it is not a, a procedural issue or a methodical issue, it's an artistic issue. It's a sort of exponential curve, isn't it? You don't go into the studio, somebody tells you how to do it on day one, Day two, you go in the studio and you go, oh, I've got it now, you know, I can do this. You go in the studio over a period of ten years, and over a period of ten years you notice different things, and you sort of learn where things are as you go along, and then it's yeah. all to do with experience, not to do with yeah. anything. You, can, it's, it's, yeah. you don't know you've learned it, in other words. It just sort of seeps in somehow. In the absence of actual real studios and business to drive them, I guess there has come to be a more pedantic need for this approach as apart from the typical apprenticeships that many of us did as we grew up in those systems. The systems don't exist to support the education. I'm not critical of the content. I'm sure whatever's in there, I haven't seen it, I can't say, but it looks like whatever's in there is all valid information and that's fine. What my criticism would be is if that's volume one, it's a bit like sort of saying to someone, and now we're going to do some woodwork, but first we've got to build our workshop. You know, it's like People don't get involved in it in order to do the building. They get involved in it to do the actual process. And, you know, as Mark was saying, you can't just treat it like a bunch of steps, you know. 
But yeah, check that one out. Francis Buckley. Um, it's the essential recording concepts, uh, starting with volume one. And it's um, the first one is Studio Fundamentals. I'd like to do the insider 1950s Wurlitzer Sideman drum machine. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> Did anyone yeah. see that? I, was, I mean, it, it, it's total geekness. I mean, it's obviously some of this Wurlitzer, um, it's a Sideman drum machine. I think it must have been to clamp on the side of your organ. And this guy's restored it. And uh, there's just a video of him actually um, playing the sounds from it. I'll just play a little bit of it. It's not the most sophisticated. And that essentially sums it up. I think it kind of does that, but in a couple of different patterns and faster and slower. But it's got that sort of enormous great wheel going around these huge contacts. It's just a brilliant piece of ancient music technology. I like it. I, I love I love uh, mechanical things, and I, you know I'm really into motorbikes and mending them and pulling gearboxes apart, and you know knowing where all the little screws and washers and everything go. And to me, something that makes that kind of music. And so I noticed that somebody on the comments and responses has said, "Yeah, but that's not music." And I actually disagree. Um, something that makes that kind of music and is that mechanical is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, I just didn't realise that anything no. like that existed that long ago. I mean, it's 1952 or something, they reckon. I mean, it's just... 19, 1959, Nick. I, I looked on synthesizers.com. They credited it as being the very first drum machine, and it was made as a companion to one of their um, living room organs. And it actually sat aside from the organ, and the organist was given this remote key switch so that he could turn it on or off, or she could turn it on and off while playing the organ. And one interesting fact about that that organ is that the Musicians Association at the time pressured Wurlitzer to stop producing them because they thought that that organ would steal jobs from drummers. <laughs> wow. Well, I wonder if the modern equivalent would be a whole gaggle of opera singers standing outside the veal-clang offices <laughs> protesting. <laughs> the, the disc thing that spins around with all the little raised lumps on it must be equivalent to what we see in our sequences and piano roll today, right? Yeah, it's just it's a wheel with contact points on it, and those contact points all um, trigger a sound. And so it just depended on how fast and where the contacts were hit for the pattern and, and the speed. The RPM of the sound, or the BPM of the sound. Right, right. Does it? This, does anyone know what technology created the sounds in there? Well, it's, oh, it it's has valve, to be valve It's all valve. Yeah, it's all valve technology. So yeah, it's a valve synth, isn't it? In a, early in, synthesis, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the shaky things sound quite good. The I thought they, I thought they sounded not dissimilar to a lot of the earlier Roland drum machines. You know, the small. Whatever they were called, compu rhythms. Yeah. Well, fantastic bit of old technology. It's amazing. There's some some great stuff coming up on YouTube at the moment, and uh, that was one of them. The new N6 music production synthesizer. From yeah. Code name. Mimo. The 61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power, based on motive tone generation, real time audio control, USB connectivity, and computer integration, bundled with Cubase LE audio and MIDI sequencing software. Create. Produce. Perform. With the affordable and versatile MM6 music production synthesizer from www.mm6music.co.uk. That was an advert for Yamaha, who have been very uh, kind to sponsor the podcast. Um, you should go and check out the MM6 at mm6music.co.uk. You can hear what it's capable of. It's actually got a lot of power under the hood, and it's one of the lowest price uh, keyboards in their range. So you should check it out. This, this, this festival, which is basically the. Um, handmade music event and it's um 
the guy who brought it together was a guy called Peter Kern from uh, D- Create Digital Music, and he. Uh, this is what he had to say on the subject. I'll just play his intro because uh, I'm Peter Kern, and I started the site Create Digital Music. We're a online magazine and community built around digital music technology, music creation. And one of the major interests of our readers is building their own stuff, building their own software, building their own hardware. So the idea of tonight was to bring those people together and folks from the make community and overlap between those two, just to kind of show off what they're doing, show off projects that are half broken or half finished, all the way to things that are working the way they want, and uh, just sort of share what they're working on with each other at all kinds of different levels and meet other people. I particularly like the, um, was it the MIDI banana? Sonic banana. The Sonic banana. <laughs> yes. I don't Brilliant. Think, I, I, uh, what was so sweet about that is I don't think the guy really kind of got, fully got the kind of, um, the entendre uh, of his creation quite. <laughs> that seemed to be the case with most of the guys. They were demoing their own toys and it, it seemed to be really struggling getting anything useful out of them. It was funny. The one thing I, I wasn't, there was a chap with an ironing board and an iron. I wasn't sure what that was actually. No, doing. it seemed to just make a high pitched squeak and not very. Whether at he all. was just doing his ironing. I don't know. No, he kept reaching for a kind of knob <laughs> and turning it, and the, I think there was some. It was like a kind of how could I? It was like an ironing board based um, ribbon controller. I think would maybe the, ah, the way you'd okay. Sort of, <laughs> okay. Peter Kern actually had quite an interesting one, and that was he he got um, Reactor. He built something in Reactor that made just kind of random and unusual noise. Then he'd interface that with something in Max MSP Jitter that was able to create three-dimensional objects based on the spectral content of the sound, and that was really that was quite visceral. Did you see that? There was this sort of shape. It was almost like something was struggling to get out and sort of reach for. I thought that was quite good. I don't know quite what you'd use it for, but you might if you hooked it up to some real high-speed rendering farm and gave it a skin, um, you know, that had some real computing power to to turn it turn those models into something looking kind of kind of organic. It would be probably quite terrifying something called gp tracker which looked like it was running on some kind of basic pda um and that was that sounded was good it, it was like, a game boy i'm not sure what it was i didn't recognize it but maybe it, it was like a ps2 or something like a playstation uh, one of those little handheld playstation devices from sony i'm not sure it wasn't a psp it was too PSP. small for that yeah i'm not quite sure what it was but it sounded kind of funky the Sonic Banana, which was like a bendy yellow pipe with a wire coming out of it, that I don't really know what it was doing. But So, I've, I mean, I've been into the analogue side of these sorts of things ever since I started making music because I couldn't afford synthesizers. And I used to get things like old radios and short things out inside them and see if it made any kind of weird noise or whatever. So I th- and when I first started working with Nick, I had built him like this synthesizer on a plank of wood which was made out of old radios and said why don't you use this on top of the pops and top of the pops and he looked at me like i was completely nuts not very 80s i think i mean mark it sounds like you know you need to go to one of these things or perhaps all i of think them. i should yeah i think that in closing that the, the final thing that i thought was particularly funny was the guy with the kind of rubber glove and the bits of um silver foil tape to them and some kind of switch thing and it, all it seemed to do was when he touched the fingers together, it created a spark. And the opening line was, ever since I was a kid, when I first opened a disposable camera and gave myself a really bad electric shock, I've been fascinated by this sort of thing. And it just... I love all that stuff. Uh, you need to go, Mark. And- I think you need to go there now. I'm going to send you a ticket. As relates to the analog uh, der- derivation of all of this, I do recall a video of Frank Zappa on the Steve Allen show in the mid-60s performing on a bicycle with drumsticks. Has, any, cool. has anybody seen this? I've got a recollection of that. I think I've seen it's photos. somewhat famous. I believe it's on YouTube. 
I was in um, Shepherd's Bush with my girlfriend. We'd been out to a really nice, probably French restaurant, actually, if I remember rightly. Yeah, we had. And we decided to um, get a cab back home, right? And I was walking past this construction site where they were making something to do with the traffic lights, and I spotted this huge length of purple hose pipe. So um, I grabbed it and jumped in the cab with it. She was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, no, this is really cool. I'm going to use this tomorrow. <laughs> Took it to work, right? And you know those Preta Frampton voice box, th- vo- oh, box yeah. things sure. that have the microphone and the speaker with the pipe? Talk we box. Sh- um, yeah. yeah, we shoved the talk box pipe down inside, well, I shoved the talk box pipe down inside this big piece of purple pipe with the microphone and then hooked the thing up so that it was playing back some stuff from Pro Tools through various different effects and stuff and then recorded it back in to the sequencer and changed the sound that it was making by moving the two pipes against each other. In other words, the talk box pipe, we were sliding it up and down inside the bigger purple pipe. And if you listen to, I think it's What Happens Tomorrow, at the beginning of that song on Duran Duran's last album, there's this kind of voice, it's Simon going, hey hey and that's him in the purple pipe being um, <laughs> manipulated by myself so there you go so it was all worth it in the end I mean I think environmental <laughs> processing environmental processing is kind of it's an interesting thing isn't it because I mean I remember um, back in the day you know when people like Mutt Lang and you know there was this sort of the way to get the drum sound you know and some people would kind of have uh, a tube that they'd mic the snare through and you know I mean I don't yeah. know I, I yeah. remember who was it Mitchell Froome used to and Chad Blake used to do a lot of that stuff didn't they they didn't use reverb or, or delays or anything they used mics hanging in um, big water vats and yeah. things even even Eddie Kramer you know would do a lot of recording in elevator shafts and stairwells and things like that to get natural ambiences right supposedly the let's dance drum sound was done in a stairwell at the power station in New York yeah, the I actual ambience. Yeah. yeah, and as to Tinley sliding that thing in and out of the uh, purple pipe, I'm immediately drawn to the concept of the sonic banana. I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness knows what you could get from that sliding it in and out of uh, a pipe. The Def Jam um, boss, uh, Russell Simmons, who's suddenly decided it's like he's become an evangelical Christian or a Washington wife or something, and he's now saying we shouldn't use any of these, that none of these words should be used in rap music, which I think is actually, you know, to be honest, is a very morally um, responsible and socially kind of good thing to do. But it just seems strange that um, that suddenly it seems to have come out of the blues. Is he getting pressured? I mean, what's going on? I mean, I, I would question that comment. I mean, what would the, that type of music be without, you know, being able to really articulate and I think, uh, is this political correctness? Too of much? course. Do you think so? Of Do you course. think he's getting pressure from this kind of Washington Wibes lobby? Because uh, I remember back in the 80s, you know, when uh, the Washington Wibes first kind of turned their their power onto kind of, well, basically social stuff. You know, they got that parental advisory sticker put in on. It was around the time of uh, NWA and all those guys and, and a lot of the rock stuff, you know, the kind of demonic. It was around the time when when um, people were being sued for demonic messages, backward masking and stuff, wasn't it? And they yeah. went crazy. Right. And as regards Russell Simmons, I don't think it's directly related to any external intervention, but I do think that he has come to recognize that light at the end of the tunnel is a freight train coming in the other direction. 
and has decided to switch tracks before the uh, inevitable collapse of his business. You think so? Yes, I do. I was wondering, I mean, and I heard um, this uh, a comment from somebody who basically said, well, if you feel so strongly about it, and, you know, great that he does, shouldn't he just say, well, I'm not going to have it happen on my label and we'll see what happens? You know, I'm going to su- suggest, you know, I'm not going to let artists on my label or sign artists that, that do, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise my, my right to censor, you know, the people I'm responsible for. He can't really... Let's see him pull the back catalog. That's got it. Yeah. Let's see. Let's, do you want to take a position? You show me you're ready to pull all of your back catalog that contains that stuff, and maybe I start to believe you. That's what I found interesting too, Nick, is this sort of Jehovah's Witness approach he has where he's sort of standing up and saying, you know, I don't agree with with the use of these expletives anymore in, in music, and I think everybody else should adhere to a standard. And uh, how you're ever going to be able to impose a standard, I well, have no idea. Well, you can't, I mean, it's just yeah, asking no, for you... trouble. And it's, I think it's always also dangerous because it's where do you start and where do you stop. I mean, you're going to have a list of words that are not allowed and who's going to decide. I mean, this was what pop and <laughs> rock and rap was always all about is that, you know, going to the limit, you know, in terms of performance, in terms of lyrics. And that's, I think that's the nature of, of, of it all. <laughs> I mean, and it's so funny that the Americans should always complain about this sort of thing when they, there's never any complaint about all that violence. I mean, that's so crazy. I mean, you can see movies for kids where pe- uh, hats are shops, shopped off, but they never say a wrong word. I mean, that's, that's a really great point, Hans. That's an excellent right. point. If, if I make it back to the lyrical content issue for a moment, um, I recall hearing a story told by George Martin at one of his wonderful lectures on the making of uh, Sgt. Pepper's, in which he relates that when they came to the line, I'd love to turn you on in A Day at the Life, they had great, they had great arguments about whether or not you could include that, whether it was encouraging people to participate in activities that EMI might not otherwise endorse. What's interesting about that, Rich, is they were banned on several radio stations for that very line. I didn't know that that was the case. I've learned something new today. You know, there's going to be censorship. There are going to be boundaries which people, you know, find acceptable and unacceptable. I think you're right. The problem is, is when you try and formalize them in some way, then you just get into a whole heap of trouble because it's very easy to suggest, but not actually explicitly say. I've never really felt compelled to want to prevent people from wanting, who want to hear songs that discuss bitches and hoes and other things like, you know, distasteful things like that. I've never wanted to prevent them from hearing it. I don't think it's a good use of rules or laws. I think it's sort of market-driven. I I applaud the fact that I don't have to be exposed to it, and I wish them well. Did you say bitches bitches and hoes?
I don't think they'll have an awful lot of range, and I also don't think the transmission speed will be fast enough to carry stereo 16-bit 44.1 kilohertz audio. Does it, does it not mention MP3 on the advert for them? Does it only send MP3s? I wonder. I wonder whether it's only able to send that amount of data. Bluetooth, Bluetooth 1.2 is 721kbps, which is a mono track of 16-bit 44.1. Right. And that's it saying the highest transmission speed in practice would be that. So I mean, you just couldn't play no, stereo that's a good audio. Point. I didn't it. think yeah. of the maths. Maths has a purpose in this particular topic. I agree. What you should do is you should go and buy um, an Airport Express because I've got one yeah. of those. In fact, I bought it when I yep. visited Rich. I've got one of those as well. But that means I'd have to buy an Airport Express and some powered speakers and then put them in the garden somehow. I was just wondering, like, if, you have, if one yeah. of your neighbours is having a barbecue... And they're playing some music you don't like. Whether you could Bluetooth hijack their signal and send them your own music. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Well, it just it just struck me that maybe there was a there was a there was a kind of market for like a, a kind of ghetto bar blaster boombox that maybe had a radio CD in it, and also just a Wi-Fi receiver, so you could say I'm a pair of speakers. You know, send me stuff. Apple need to be listening yeah, to this podcast. Well, that's, you that's there's definitely yeah. a well, they do they that. do that with the they do that Boom, with the Express, cool. and then there's the also the big Apple sort of thing that you plug your iPod into, but it doesn't do them both together. In sort of a component would work quite well. What's interesting is that I Googled Bluetooth speakers and at B and H here in, in the United States they're selling no less than twenty two companies are manufacturing Bluetooth speakers. Yeah, wow. but I mean, I, the, the other thing I thought of, you know, based on your, your kind of uh, bandwidth idea as well, was the fact, you know, okay, ideal for mobile phones, but if I've got stuff on my own mobile phone it's going to be EQ'd for mobile phone. I don't really want that blasting out at 60 watts. It's going to sound terrible. It's going to have no back. You know, it's going to, it's going to sound like a megaphone or something. Well, the iPhone might be uh, a good product for this kind of thing because it does combine. It doesn't have speakers, but it does combine the Wi-Fi and the music playback probably in a handheld device. So that, I want that ready for my next barbecue, which will probably be this weekend. I also got, um, after our kind of recent couple of weeks when we were talking about mixer feedback and we all had a go, uh, Mark's um, logic uh, feedback document last week, and um, a chap called Patrick Harmon sent me a link to uh, an artist called David Lee Myers, who has been doing feedback-only music uh, since 1988. He does other stuff as well, but he's kind of an experimental electronic musician, stroke artist, multimedia kind of guy. And um, we, uh, I, I downloaded one of the things. Let me just play you a little bit of it. And he's built all these incredible devices That's actually no. quite high frequency. I'm not sure how much of well, that's going to come out when we've got the MP3 encoding in place. But uh, <laughs> um, oh, I can hear it down the phone. Oh, that good. sounds a bit like that sounds a bit like a forest by the cure, doesn't it? A There's a certain something about it. But yeah, I mean, it's quite. I wouldn't say it was easy listening. Well, this, I mean, this was just feedback loops so that he built these. Um, this chap, David Lee Myers, he's built. Um, he built something called a feedback workstation, which kind of looks like an old school modular system. Um, and he's just got, what has it got in it? Let me see. It's got four Digitech 7.6 second delays uh, and a feedback matrix, a smaller submixture, um, a mixer, two DIY ring modulators and um, some kind of nutty time clock generator and various uh, general use, you know, graphic EQs, etc. And he used to perform his stuff on these things. And so he's obviously built his own things as well. I and mean, that's kind of, that's quite admirable. I must admit, though, I didn't hear anything that made me want to rush out and buy one of his albums, but... I mean, he's obviously put. I mean, a that's lot of the work problem in. with it, isn't it? 
I love all of this stuff, but I'm so bloody cynical about it. Otherwise, I'd probably be doing it all the time myself. <laughs> I mean, it just seems that nobody really does anything, any music of any particular note from these things. I mean, they're all great fun and great toys to play with and stuff. But but do you think, I mean, as with, as with a lot of contemporary art, you know, it's all about the process and the description of the process. Yeah, it's about not, the concept. I think you're right. Yeah. Not yeah. so much it about the, the concept, finished result. isn't it? Listenable. Well, it's the sort of music versus sound, isn't it? Sound, sound design, I suppose. Mm. Slightly different areas, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I'd call that more sound design. I mean, I, I don't know. Rich, have you ever kind of employed any kind of bizarre feedback loops in, uh, intentionally into uh, your recordings or mixes? Uh, maybe on a private basis back in college when I was processing live players through an AKS synthy and such tape delays and whatnot and trying to mangle it into something rec- relatively unrecognizable but it was really more from a research standpoint, certainly not on any of the pop music work I've done. But there is a large contingent of people. Uh, uh, One guy who comes to mind is guitarist Fred Frith, who do base quite a bit of their work on sort of uh, non-tonal, non-rhythmically driven soundscape-type materials that that may not even have discernible scales. Mm. So there's a sort of an art community that that supports this. I don't know who goes and sees it. I mean, how do you listen it. to it? You know, when you buy a CD of that, I mean, I just can't imagine an application where you'd want to sit down and listen to that. I mean, you'd kind of study well, it, perhaps. I well, like Eno's work, it's kind of intended, I think, largely to be part of the background to your lifestyle. I mean, it sort of reminds me a little bit of um, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre soundtrack. You know, it's kind of it's supposed to be uncomfortable and unpleasant. It makes you feel a certain way. You know, it's. It's it's about maybe um, getting you to feel uncomfortable or getting you to feel one way or another. I mean, then that might be. I think it descends from music concrete principles as well. In the late late fifties and early sixties, a lot of uh, the tape manipulation stuff. Yeah, Messian and Cage and all those guys. You know, recently having gone to the to the Bent Festival, there was an opening night reception at the Museum of American Art um, here in Minneapolis, and. They had a, a sound sculpture exhibit, and embedded in the walls were various CD players and video players that um, were either related or not related, but you could pick up the CD uh, headphones and listen to what was being played, and there was a description on the wall, and I remember um, one of the exhibits was of uh, recordings, three minutes worth of recordings that were manipulated and looped of a gallery space, just the ambient sounds that happened in a gallery space. And I remember listening to it and reading the description, and the the, um, the artist said that she wanted to make people feel differently about about space, about their experience of space, think differently about sound in space, about ambiences in space. And I remember listening to it and thinking it sounded like the Eraserhead soundtrack from David Lynch's film Eraserhead. But it was it was interesting to stand there and focus on. The minutia, the minutia of the sound and sort of the, the granular aspects of, of uh, you know, people's feet scraping along a floor when they're right. pitched down and stretched out. And uh, given that venue, I think that I think there's definitely a valid, you know, a valid place for this type of thing. Um, somebody tied a Fender Stratocaster guitar to a piece of rope, put a guitar amp in the back of a truck, turned it all up as loud as it would go, and drove off. And drove and drove and drove and drove. And drove. 
until the guitar was just a lump of wood hanging on the piece of rope and you know the pickups just blender. Go clattering along the ground. <laughs> it's, just, it's a big Blendtec blender. Yeah. Yeah. Video, will, it blend, video. will it blend? I don't care. Will it drag? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I bet you we see um, you know Ford or one of the or GM or something taking that blending kind of concept and and maybe uh, yeah working. Uh, Working that up, that sounds like, you know, a, a treatment I think they'd probably go for, given a good pitch. Back on the subject of interactive mosh pits, which is what that first example reminded me of a bit, I do recall some years ago Eno doing an a art gallery installation in New York whereby uh, sound was spatially generated based on the movements of the people in the room. Right. And you could actually manipulate the playback by moving your body around in certain ways. Oh, fantastic. Hmm. See that sort oh, of interests me because yeah. the, the the guests in the room become part of the performance. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I like the yeah. idea of that. Yeah, I've just uh, I just googled guitar drag, which is what that piece was called, and I've just discovered that it's now being released on Neon Records. Hey. You can actually <laughs> buy it. Excellent. <laughs> well, listen, guys, I think. Um, Let's say thank you ever so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, Hans, uh, non Eric from Berlin, thank you very much. Yes, and if you're a German speaker, go to www.musotalk.de. That's right. Or if you want to get if you want to get on the web and start jamming with other people and sell your services, go to digitalmusician.net. Also, thank you to PJ Tracy in Minneapolis. Oh, thank you so much, Nick. You're welcome. Thank you, uh, John Musgrave. Thank you very much for joining us once again. Thanks very much. And Rich Hilton. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you, and Mark Tinley. Thanks for joining us and giving us so much information this week. I wish you'd thanked me third, because I was going to say thank you very much, it's been a pleasure. And then John said thank you very much, and Rich said it's been a pleasure, and now I can't do that one. I've got to do a different one, right? Uh, okay, yeah, so, okay, let's try so again. So I could just say... Uh, Sonic. Sonic. State. 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 Sonic.